Good morning. Again, it is good to see everyone excited about this passage. Very encouraged. The book of Acts has been pleasurable, hasn't it? Uh, Enjoying going through it and seeing how the gospel affects change in men who cowered, who are now bold. That's what gospel does. That's what understanding Jesus does to our hearts. Today we're going to see an excellent example of uh, biblical defense. There are really two kinds of defenses given in Scripture and also in our lives we see these. There's a biblical defense and a fleshly defense. We all have been put in circumstances where we think we need to give a defense for ourselves. Don't we? Ever been there? How about this week, right? For example, a child can do something that disappoints their parents, and when they are confronted, they think to themselves, I need to defend myself. Or a spouse can be confronted with either an accurate or an inaccurate sin, and the confronted person can then think, I need to defend myself to my spouse. You need to treat me better. Or a boss can confront an employee for wrong or right reasons. And we can think, I need to give a defense. This isn't fair. I need to make sure you understand why I did what I did. Beloved, most of these defenses are often given with fleshly motives. Selfish motives. We, ha- we all hate to be confronted, don't we? We hate to be corrected, and we hate to be questioned. But, beloved, the motive of our heart is so important when we are questioned. Whether we defend ourselves or not should should first be submitted to the Word of God. Beloved, a true biblical defense is about Christ's honor, not our own. Mark that down. Think on that. Put it away, store it, because you're going to see it today. If we respond for our own prideful reasons or self-exaltation, we are not Christ-focused, and therefore we are not going to be gospel-focused, and therefore we are not going to respond appropriately. Ladies and gentlemen, God sovereignly puts us in situations where we are confronted for both wrong and right reasons. Do you understand that? That everything that happens to you is for your good and for God's glory, correct? Even being wrongly accused. He does this so that we can exalt Christ in our lives. But do we defend ourselves? Should we defend ourselves? The answer is only if the glory of Christ is what we seek to defend. It's a wild thought. That is very important If you are seeking to defend yourself, not the glory of Christ, then we've missed it. If we defend ourselves because of our pride, we are in fact giving a fleshly defense. This is the question we should all ask ourselves before we give a defense. Whose honor is at stake? That's the question we need to ask our hearts. Is it about me or is it about Jesus? Is it Jesus' honor that's at stake, or is it about defending ourselves? 
Beloved, a biblical defense is about exalting Jesus Christ, not ourselves. Today we're going to see Peter gives an amazing defense. And when he does it, it's all about Christ's honor and his glory. My prayer is, is that we will all see, we'll, we will all be about defending Jesus, not ourselves. And at the same time, even in our defense of Jesus, we need to be careful, don't we? To defend him the way he wants to be defended. That's another very important point to remember. You know, Jesus, we can actually defend Jesus in pride. You realize that? We can defend him saying, I want to be right. We can have a theological argument and still miss it. Again, it's about our heart. Is it, is it Christ's glory and honor that's at stake or is it ours? And it's, till, it's only when we are completely fixed on Christ and focused on the glory of the gospel and relying upon the Spirit to accomplish these things that we will give a good biblical defense when we're supposed to. Do you understand? This is different kind of thinking, isn't it? It goes contrary to the world. Peter and John have entered the Temple Mount. We saw that in chapter 3 after healing a lame man as instruments of Jesus. The Lord has used them to heal this lame man that had been lame for 40 plus years. Then Peter gave a masterpiece of a sermon to the crowd who had rushed in amazement to see the man who had been made uh, well who had been, was lame previously. So the crowd rushes in in amazement, and Peter gives a great sermon, doesn't he? We've talked about it for the last couple of weeks, an amazing sermon in chapter 3. Now today we're going to see the religious elites get word of Peter's sermon, and they respond in anger. <laughs> they get word of this lame man being healed, and they say, wait a second, Jesus is still getting glory on this temple mount? There's a problem. It's got to stop. And they get angry. Today we see that preaching the gospel accurately can have two dramatically different responses. First, rejection. Second, reception. Those two things are factual. This should encourage us to proclaim the gospel boldly, trusting in the Lord for our results, right? We proclaim Him trusting that God will work. We will also see that even when we face rejection of the message, we should be ready to proclaim the gospel message again in humble reliance upon Him. Very interesting. Proclaim the gospel. Following Jesus, proclaim the gospel. It's rejected. What do we do? Respond with the gospel. <laughs> That's interesting. Instead of being rejected, being rejected, the gospel's being rejected, I'm just preaching the gospel. They reject you, and then you go, let me defend myself. That's what we often do. Instead of just proclaiming the gospel again. And that's exactly what Peter does here. He just goes right back to Jesus. He goes back to exalting the king, even in the rejection. Another opportunity to exalt Jesus. Here he is. In Acts chapter 4. Put simple, our defense is not about uh, who we are, about or of who we are, but rather who Jesus is. 
so important. It's not about us. It's about Him. And if we can think that way always, we're going to be okay. But we don't, do we? Beloved, we must be about the exaltation of Jesus. Chapter 4 breaks down into these sections. and We'll cover the first four, Lord willing, today. The arrest is in verses 1 through 3. The reception is verse 4. The interrogation in verses 5 to 7. The defense is found in verses 8 to 12, probably the pinnacle of the whole circumstance. The the reply in verses 13 and 14. The deliberation in verses 15 and 17 through 17. The verdict in verses 18 to 20. The release. And finally, the worship. And then one more. The sacrifice. We'll talk about that. That section actually is a very interesting section. In verse 32 to 37, you could argue that the chapter break's not real good. It could go on to the next chapter. It's, it fits real well with five, and you'll see as we get there. But ultimately, this is how the package is broken down. Today, we're going to deal with those first four, the arrest, the reception, the interrogation, and the defense. Let's start with the arrest. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. The resting officers we see here were the trusted officials, the priest, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. These were the ones that the area, Jerusalem, looked up to. These were the leaders. These were the ones that were popular as a whole in the area. The priests, those were the godly people in the eyes of the people many times. The captain of the temple guard, they were respected in many ways. The Sadducees were also rich and famous. The Sadducees, in fact, were today's equivalent to the liberal scholar. The Sadducees had rejected much of the miracles of the Old Testament and had made it more about a religion of self-exaltation. The Sadducees were the ruling power at that time in the Temple Mount area. But these were trusted officials. It's very interesting that the rest comes from those that you would consider or the world would consider the least likely people to arrest the good guys. And in this case, it's those. Trust, and this is a call for all of us, to trust only and embrace only the Lord Jesus. We cannot trust, and and, and listen to me closely, and I'm going to explain this as we go along. We cannot trust worldly leaders. I'm sorry. (laughs) Do you understand? Do not just say, okay, I embrace whatever they say. Okay? Also... What you see on TV, don't trust it, okay? If people have unregenerate hearts and they're telling you all these things, then they have really one person in mind. And who is that? Themselves. I'm being honest, okay? However, we still submit to them. And that is very important. Trust does not always line up with submission. Not always. Thankfully, it's that way with Jesus. When we trust in him, he's reliable, and we submit to him, and it's not a problem. We get to enjoy him. However, 
trusting your officials like these priests, the captain of the temple guards and the Sadducees was not something you should do. Don't trust their biblical or their wrong biblical teaching. In fact, you should submit to them though. It's very interesting that they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day. You know, Peter didn't it doesn't appear that he throws a fit. Matter of fact, even later on we'll see he's arrested. The only thing that gets him out is an angel comes and opens the door and he walks out. He goes when he's supposed to. He submits to people above him. Leadership, that's the way it is. Submit not in their sin, but in their persecution of you. Ooh, that's hard to hear, isn't it? Are we supposed to submit to leaders and above us when they treat us wrong? Yes. Why? Opportunity. Opportunity to glorify God. See, God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? In every event that happens in our life, including a boss treating us bad for wrong reasons, is an opportunity to what? Glorify the lamb. And that's what God does. The motives of these rulers, their arrest, we see in this passage, was anger or hostility towards Peter. It says literally, being greatly disturbed. They were provoked to anger. We should never seek to make someone angry with us, right? You understand that. But if they do get angry with us, may it only be because of our commitment to the gospel. That's very important to get this. You know, as I was reading through this and thinking through Acts, and as I go through this, I can't help to, but tell you that First Peter just screams in my head. The book of First Peter is just going, oh, wow, wow. Because everything I see happening to Peter, he talks about in First Peter. Every single thing that go, he goes through in his life, he then talks about and tells them to do. Submitting to leaders, even when they treat you wrong. That's exactly what he's talking about. And then he does it. They were angry at them. Oh, beloved, listen to me. Be careful with this. We often apply passages like this to ourselves when we are where we are because of our own sinfulness. Do you understand what I mean by that? If somebody treats you bad because you are sinful towards them, guess what? You're getting what you deserve. Do you understand? That's called a consequence. Own it. Take it. Don't give a defense if you treated somebody bad and they treat you bad back. In fact, take it. Yep, I deserve that one. Has your spouse ever said that to you? I deserve that one. Have you ever said that to your spouse? I deserve that one. I was rude to you, and I got what I deserve. Very interesting, isn't it? Oh, beloved, don't, don't apply this passage to you if you're a sinful person towards somebody else. Do you get it? Here, we can apply it if they're provoked to anger over the gospel. How many of you have had, and you don't have to raise your hand, had somebody get angry at you because you were kindly and gently helping people for the gospel's sake? That doesn't happen all the time, does it? This, they healed a layman. 
by the power of Jesus, they helped somebody. And the crowds were going, yes, I want to hear more. And they were exalting Jesus, and they got mad at them. Anger. They were provoked to anger. I don't know about you guys, but often people get angry at me, not because I was innocent and not because I was proclaiming the gospel. Sometimes it happens, but not as often, correct? But if we are humbly serving our king and people get mad at you because they hate Jesus, then we need to respond like Peter and John, correct? The same way. The ruler's anger was over the truth being taught. Notice it says it in this verse. It says, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, there's two aspects here. The fact of the matter is, is that they didn't like the name Jesus proclaimed at all. Because they tell them, quit talking by the end in the verdict. They say, quit mentioning that name. Don't talk about that name. And it becomes the theme throughout the next couple chapters. The name of Jesus means the person and work of Jesus. Stop talking about him. Secondly, the Sadducees denied the resurrection altogether. They said there is no resurrection because after all that would be miraculous, right? And so you're saying miracles are true and a resurrection is going to happen because of what Jesus did. Stop saying that. And they got angry. Again, beloved doctrine can divide. Think about this for a second. True doctrine does divide true believers and false believers. Do you understand? When you stand for the truth, there are going to be times for division. In a church, we should strive for unity in doctrine, shouldn't we? It's very interesting, but our hearts are exposed when truth is preached and lived. Often when we live for Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, we're going to be rejected by the world, so there'll be a separation. It's very important. Listen to me. But again, be careful. Because sometimes the ones causing division are the false teachers who are proclaiming a different Jesus and a desire to exalt themselves. Okay? Again, God works through both. <laughs> Do you understand? The reality is this. If we preach the Jesus of the Bible, it's going to rub people the wrong way. Do you understand? And if we treat, preach the truth and we keep going through the truth, there are going to be people that are in the church that are going to leave the church. How do we know this? Because it's the pattern that we've seen throughout the New Testament. If you preach the truth, people leave. Really? Yes. That's a fact. Now, should I want to just get under people's skin? No, that's not being at peace with all men, seeking to be at peace with all men. And, and sometimes you have a church full of people that have a tendency to just want to pick fights. And so what you do there, you have some preachers that will get up there, and you know how they tickle the ears of the ones that just want to pick fights? They scream at other people. They pick fights with other people, and everybody in the church goes, Yay, that's great! You understand? That's wrong, too. The motives of the heart are crucial. Is it the glory of Christ, the honor of his name, or is it your own selfish, prideful reasons? 
We know doctrine here, don't we? Lord willing, we are attempting to grow in grace and knowledge of him daily, aren't we? And we are going to stand for the truth here, aren't we? Why? The glory of Christ's name, not the glory of Mike Sprott. He cares about the glory of me. It's not about me and it's not about you. It's about Jesus. Oh, beloved, get this. This is what Peter is all about now. They spent the night in jail for telling the truth. And they laid hands on them, verse 3 says, and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. It very well could cost us all something to be associated with Jesus. Again, make sure the reason you are rejected by the world is true, is the true proclamation of Jesus, not personal sin. But aligning ourselves with Jesus during this time, the new covenant time, often means being rejected or persecuted. Do you understand that? It is a fact. And if we have a true biblical view of the gospel, we will see this persecution as what it really is. What is persecution? Answer, a blessing. Really? Persecution is a blessing? Yes, it is. I'm enjoying the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And one of the blessings is this. Persecution. Really? Absolutely. That's what we get during this time. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right? Again, we seek to be at peace with all men. Romans 12, we're not just trying to pick fights. We just don't want people to get angry at us just because we're picking fights. That's sin, correct? But it is inevitable that we're going to face times of tribulation. And by the way, 2 Timothy 3.12 is not the only time it's mentioned, this persecution. Philippians 1.29 and 30 states this, For to you it has been graciously given for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. How about this one? How many of you look at persecution and trials and being treated wrong as gifts from God. Unmerited favor from God. Literally what he means here. But this is how Peter views it in Acts 4 and this is why Peter responds appropriately because he views the circumstances that he's in under the sovereign hand of God. And that all these things are happening because God wants it to happen. How do I know this? Because when you get to the worship, that's exactly what they all praise God for. You did this. You're in sovereign control of it. Even the persecution? Even when your godly, loving spouse says something wrong to you? Yes. Even when you're mistreated by a brother or sister in the congregation? Yes. Really? Yes. Oh, do you understand, brothers and sisters, that this is our opportunity to show off the glory of Christ to our brothers and sisters when they treat us bad and we don't defend ourselves and we just love them anyway? 
and let love cover a multitude of sins? And we point them to the gospel? That's a wild thought, isn't it? Peter and John, we will see, use this to honor God, not exalt themselves. Now notice the second response to Peter's sermon, the reception. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. A couple of key elements here for us to remember as we look at this verse. This is description, not prescription. If I preach that same sermon, it does not guarantee that we're going to add another 2,000 people. It comes as a result, though, of what? Hearing the message. It is the proclamation of the gospel. Hearing the message of the gospel and understanding that God is the one that adds to the number, because after all, Acts 2.47 had already said this, hadn't it? Acts 2.47, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's very interesting here. Do you see this here? It says, praising God and having favor with all people. What's that? Well, that means that everybody was getting along with them at that point. Things are going to change dramatically. Very soon, within a couple of chapters, we're, they're going to be running for their lives. And they ain't going to have favor with all people anymore. What does this, why is this important to recognize? For the same reason that numbers add to a church because of God's grace, it is also persecution becomes because, comes because of God's grace. All things are because of God, good and bad. How we interpret it is ultimately it's in God's interpretation. He's working all things together for good. And we see here that there's a growth. I don't know about you guys. I want this church to be full of people. I want you being sitting on the floor because we don't have any room. That's what I want. Why? Because I want lots of people to know the glory of Christ. He is good. He pays for sin. You can have all your sins forgiven if you will trust in him. I want that. Don't you want that? Yet at the same time, I know that the size of the church is completely 100% dependent upon God. I have a responsibility, you have a responsibility, and that is proclaim the truth. We are not responsible for the numbers, contrary to the seeker-sensitive movement that says that they need to bring as many as they can in here by saying whatever they can say to get as many people in here. This applies to all things, ladies and gentlemen. Motives, motives, motives. If you're being a friend... If you're being a friend with the person just so that they will eventually become a, a follower of Jesus, that can be a problem. Really? Absolutely it can be a problem if you're trying to manipulate the circumstance to get them to believe by you being nice to somebody. That doesn't work. It doesn't work. Does that mean just be rude to them? <laughs> no. Come on. I have to ask those questions because sometimes people take what you say and they go to the other end, the extreme. Do you understand? I'm always balancing here. I'm always saying, don't go there because I know that if I say this, it'll go there. Be careful. The increase in Jerusalem 
was only for a relatively short period of time. Arguably less than a year, probably months. What happens? Things turn around and the missionaries leave when the revival turns from conversion to persecution. Now, do the apostles stay? Yes, they do. But the fact of the matter is they stay just to be killed. Out of the 11, 10 died. Hmm. He brings increase, and he also brings persecution. All of this is important to remember. And then we'll be ready for a defense, which is what he does. Notice the interrogation in verses 5 through 7. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they were asking, By what power or in what name have you done this? Ladies and gentlemen, this is the who's who of religious hypocrites. That's who these people were. The elders, the rulers, the scribes were gathered. The high priest. Y'all know Caiaphas, don't you? Y'all know Annas. Those were the ones that were responsible for the death of Jesus. They were the ones that said that he should die just a few months earlier. Less than two months earlier. Notice the confrontation by intimidation that says, When they placed them in the center, literally they put them in the middle of themselves. They put them there and said, look at all of us, look at you, what are you doing? Intimidation. Notice also their questioning was continuous. It says they were asking. Now, they didn't just ask this question one time, by what power or what name have you done this? The, The verb there used in the Greek is to emphasize that they were constantly badgering them with these kind of questions. The concept was they were interrogating them over and over. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? How did this happen? Whose name are you doing this? How did you do that miracle? Over and over and over and over. How do you respond when you're interrogated? Anybody? How do you do? I don't know about you guys, but when I get interrogated, I want to run. Right? I just want to get out of there. They were in the midst. They couldn't get out. They could go nowhere else. And they didn't want to go anywhere else. What? Why didn't they want to go anywhere? Because they knew this was an opportunity. I get to speak for Jesus. I I get to exalt my king. This is the opportunity God's given me. Oh, I've heard this so many times from pulpits. Jehovah Witness knocks on your door. Don't answer the door. It's a JW. They don't believe Jesus is God. Opposite for Grace Bible Church. Invite them in. Call them to repentance. Point them to Jesus Christ, the only God of the Bible. The member of the Trinity. The one who lives and reigns. And do it with grace and gentleness, not argumentative. And don't make it about yourself winning an argument. 
because if you do, you've missed your opportunity to defend the faith. So true, isn't it? You know, one day it could be worse. Do you understand? I was thinking on this this week. Now, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fully aware of the possibility that one day I could go to jail for Christ. Do you understand, as I go through 1 Corinthians, I'm going to say scriptures like, you can be free from homosexuality. There is hope in Christ. I'm going to say that. Do you understand? And you know what they're going to say to me? You're being prejudiced. I don't know about you, African Americans, y'all should be offended at that. That they equate equality over race with a sinful condition in the heart. That's a problem. That speaks a lot about our culture, doesn't it? Those are two totally opposite things. God made you fearfully and wonderfully the way you are. Beautiful. But a sinful heart's a sinful heart, period. And if we stand for the truth, we very well could be put in the midst and said, give an answer. What happens when your tax write-offs go away? Do you stop giving? I hope not. What happens when we lose tax-exempt status here and we have to start paying mega taxes on all the money that you give? We do it. What happens when they start levying fines on us because we don't hire a homosexual onto the staff? We pay the fine. What happens when they say, if you do not stop doing this, we're going to shut you down. You cannot have a permit. We meet anyway. What happens when they come to our doors and arrest us? We go peacefully, peacefully, and we give a defense of the gospel. What happens when they string a noose around my neck and hang me? I proclaim Jesus Christ is what I do. Not judging. Calling to repentance. To give hope. This is what it's about. Do you see how we got to get this? We got to get these things right in our heart, ladies and gentlemen. You know why we got to get these right in our heart? Because days could come when it's going to be a lot harder. I'm not talking about a boss mistreating you and making you work a little bit of overtime. Do you understand? Do you understand? What you're going through now doesn't come close to comparison. You better be ready. Jesus better be your first delight. Or we're in trouble. Oh, look at the glory of this defense. This is what I want to do. Look at it. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, 
Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which the builder rejected. The builders rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Wow, isn't this wonderful? Oh, that is my prayer. That every one of my defenses would look like that. Amen? Amen. That's, what, that's, what, that's how we need to respond. Do you notice? He says nothing about himself really. It's all deflected on Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's all about exalting Christ. Notice the defendants. Who are the defendants? Well, here it says then Peter. He's the defendant, right? Is the defendant. But ultimately, who's on trial again? Jesus is on trial again. And Peter understands it. He's embraced it. He understands what Jesus had told them. They will hate you because they hate me. He understands it. He gets it. So Peter did not take his stand alone either, did he? Notice, he didn't take a stand alone, did he? Yes, he did. Mike, it's only Peter that's speaking. Where's another person? The Holy Spirit is there. The triune God is there. The Spirit. Jesus is ultimately on trial again, so what does the Spirit do? He takes his position. He takes his role and he says, let me tell you about Jesus. He is good. It's about Jesus. Oh, ah, this is, ah. Why don't we see this in Acts? We make it about miracles when it's about Jesus. And even the Spirit's all about what? Jesus. Why did he do the healing to the layman? So Peter could preach the sermon about Jesus. But not only that, because the sovereign God even saw this defense and saw another opportunity to proclaim Jesus. And so Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. What's that mean, filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, it means he got a little bit more of the Spirit. No. No. It means the Spirit of God took control of Peter. Took control of him. I love this. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, look at this, Matthew 10, 16. Jesus had told him this. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Boy, that's a promise, isn't it? Nobody claims that promise. Very few of us do that one, right? Yay! I got that promise. I'm going out in the whip midst of wolves. It's a promise. And it starts with behold. Pay attention. So be shrewd or wise as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues, in their synagogues. That's going to happen. Do you know that? In Acts, we're going to see it. 
And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake. We're going to see that in Acts. As a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, here you go, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Wow, this is good stuff, isn't it? Now, I want to challenge you a little bit on this uh, application-wise. Does that mean we don't need to study? No, that's not what he's talking about. Come on. You pursue Jesus. You understand who he is. The more you dive into the glory of Christ and the gospel, the Spirit then takes the word of God and uses it. And I would argue that the apostles had an extra bit of help from the, uh, the apostle. I do believe that. But the fact of the matter is, is that we still can be filled with the Spirit. How do I know that? Because Ephesians says it's a command. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So yes, we can be controlled by the Spirit, but it's very crucial. We should prepare, we should pray, and then we should rely upon God when the opportunities come. That's ultimately what we're looking at. This is what Peter's doing. We can be and are still filled with the Spirit. As I said, Ephesians 5.18, y'all know that verse, right? Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay. You know there's a parallel to that verse? Anybody know that? It's parallel in Colossians. And you look at the things that come out of being filled with the Spirit. What are the results? Singing and praising God and thanking Him. And the roles of husband and wife. You see all that coming out of there? Go over to Colossians. It's a sister letter. And look what it says. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. How are we filled with the Spirit? How are we controlled with the Spirit? Here's how. When the word of Christ richly dwells within us. When the word of God permeates our soul and all that we think about and are perceiving and seeking and relying upon and dwelling on is Christ and Him crucified and Him resurrected and reigning. When we're meditating and putting truths of God's word in our hearts, the word of Christ is in us, then the Spirit controls us by that. That's what these guys were all about. They were permeated with the glory of the gospel. They were totally fixated on the goodness of God and how Christ had came to die for them and rose from the dead. He was everything to them. And so you see it in their words. Don't we see it? They just speak. I mean, it oozes out of Peter all the time. The glory of Christ. It's Christ. It's Jesus. Oh, brother, beloved, please listen to me. What do you put in your minds? What are the things that we're meditating on? You say, I want to be ready to give this kind of defense when it happens. Y'all want to be there? You want to be ready? It's not just going to Sunday school. It's not just a one or tw- once a week going to Bible study. It's not. It's a constant, continuous pursuit of knowing the Lord Jesus through His Word. And as it permeates our soul, we are then what? We just speak it. 
It's Christ. All the time. Controlled by the Spirit. What is your first love? What are the things that you seek? Who is your God? Is it the world? Or is it Christ? Notice Peter's bold defense. (laughs) Oh, by the way, just a note here. Notice that he says, he gives a respect to the address. He says, rulers and elders of the people. I don't know about you guys, but when I get confronted sometimes and interrogated, for even for Jesus' namesake, I say, you know, I think in my mind, you know, you only have this position because God sovereignly allowed you to have this position. <laughs> I'm like, I got Romans 13 on the back of my head right away. You know, you're only my king because God said you were going to be my king. And you're supposed to be my servant, by the way. God's servant, but you're supposed to serve me. What are we thinking when we get that ticket? How many of you have gotten a ticket and you, you give an excuse? I'll just own it. You understand that God, I, you know, this is going to rock some of you and you might disagree and again it's application, but if you're fighting tickets in court, you got a problem. <laughs> Do you understand? If you get a spanking, take it. Do you understand? But, 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 but. Who gives you the money you have? Beloved, show respect to elders and rulers even when they treat you wrong. Call them rulers and elders. They did it. He didn't call them you good for nothing losers. (laughs) I'm going to vote you out next time. We're going to get together and we're going to have this great voting party. And I'm going to get rid of you because I think you're a louse. No, show respect. Don't we see this throughout the scriptures? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they were going before the fiery furnace, right? In Daniel 3, 16, here's their defense. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. They called him O king. They still called him O king? Really? Here's me on that, or my fleshly me. I'll give you the fleshly me. Who do you think you are? (laughs) Do you understand? I'm Shadrach. And I'm Shadrach only because you renamed me. The fact of the matter is, is that God has a better name for me. And I'm an Israelite. And do you understand? You are only where you are because the real king upstairs, the real God in heaven. They didn't do that. They took it and they said it, right? But even if he does not, that is God, does not deliver us, let it be known, O king, again, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So in other words, there is a time to say, hey, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. But I'm going to show respect in the process of doing it. I'm still going to honor those that are above me. You're the king. And if God has determined for me to be dying in a fiery furnace, I'm going to die in a fiery furnace. I'm going to show respect to you. And Daniel, I love this. In Daniel 4, when he talks to Nebuchadnezzar, 
He says, my Lord, if, you, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. He's talking about the king. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. He's not talking about King Jesus. He says, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. He's showing all-out respect to Nebuchadnezzar. You know what goes through our minds? I don't know about you guys, but this stuff goes through my mind. When, are you tempted to do this? When somebody's mocking you or doing something wrong for the name of Christ, they, they don't agree with you, you, you almost take it personal more. You go the uh, 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 further extreme. Do you understand? Do you understand you're mocking my God? Uh, there's a wrong, wrong thing there. Even then, that can be wrong. Do you understand why that can be wrong? That can be pride. Show respect to those who are mocking you. Be gentle and kind back to them. This is how Peter did it. And yet he's clear and concise, isn't he? He's very clear and confrontational. Notice he says, look at this. It's beautiful. He gives a coherent argument, a logical one. He says, if we are on trial today for the benefit done to this sick man, as to how this man has been made well, there should be a then here. You can put a then there to help you understand. If then statement. Then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. And then he goes off on a little tangent. That by the name of Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, he picks it back up and says, by this name, this man stands here before you of good health. Peter uses a very wise defense. It's excellent. He covers all of that in so many, I mean, just a short, concise phrase. I don't know about you guys. This is something that I just, I love about Jesus. I've said this before when we were going through Luke, remember? I said, he's so good at being precise and saying just what he needs to say and not a lot more. It's almost like he can say so much and so little and just bonk, get it all in there. Notice the effect of being taught by Jesus. Peter does the same exact thing. He says so much with so many, with so few words. Beautiful, isn't it? Logically, concisely, honorable. Peter makes it clear. Jesus is the focus of his defense. He doesn't defend himself. He goes back to the gospel. We are here speaking about a miracle because of Jesus. That's what he says. And Peter gave a commendation to Jesus. Look at this. Oh, beloved. This is wonderful. Look what he says about Christ. He says, by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands. And he says, he is the stone which the builders rejected, which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. This is from Psalm 118 that we read in our Old Testament passage today. Oh, beloved, look what he says about him. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. Jesus is the Nazarene. Jesus is the crucified one. Wait a second. Wait a second. When I give a defense of Jesus, I often want to give only the good ones. Is that a good one? Yes, it is for us. 
Is it a good one for the world? Often, no, they think we're foolish. You just heralded a Nazarene. Yes, I did. And it's good. <laughs> you just heralded a crucified Savior, Messiah. Yes, I did. And that's what he does. He's not worried at all about what his audience thinks. He just tells the truth. Jesus died. Crucified. You crucified him. Now think about this again. This is staggering. In other words, you had your moment of victory. You killed him. And I serve him. <laughs> Ultimately, because God raised him from the dead, too. Had they seen him raised from the dead? No. Only the ones God revealed himself, the 500. And in fact, you look at the other gospel accounts, it appears that God kept them from seeing him resurrected. Boy, give me proof of the resurrection. That's what they'll say, right? Doesn't matter. He, re he raised from the dead. Why do I know this? Because the word of God says it. And because he did. And that's enough. Y'all understand who we serve today? It's the same Jesus, the one that died and rose from the dead. Y'all know that we serve a resurrected Savior. Glorious, isn't it? I literally live on a planet where most of the people in the world that think I'm off my rocker think I'm crazy. My life is all about a man who died and rose from the dead, a God-man. And I'm okay with that, aren't you? Matter of fact, I enjoy it. He's the stone which the builders rejected. He's the chief cornerstone. He's glorious, isn't he? I'm convinced we often take it for personal in our defenses. We get distracted from who is under attack and who really we should defend. It is not about our agenda, is it, ladies and gentlemen? He is the one worthy of our exaltation. He is who we exalt. The moment we begin to defend our position instead of the crucified, resurrected, reigning Savior, we slip into pride. Peter stayed focused on the gospel, didn't he? How many times have I told you this, guys? Why do you think we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day? Because the gospel is who we are. We live for Christ all the time. And if we don't, we will fail. I can't, this side, as far as I've gone, the more I've gone through and thought through the gospel, the more I've thought on this, I can't believe I used to think when I was a new believer that the gospel was only to get people saved at the beginning. I can't believe I used to think that. I used to think that. Did y'all think that too? The longer I walk in my walk with the Lord, I can't even imagine taking a moment and saying, it's not for me today. I need Christ so much every second of the day, I can't even breathe without him. I'm speaking metaphorically, I need him. Everything. I can't be a good husband. I can't be a good father. 
I can't be a good employee. I can't do anything apart from the glory of the gospel in my heart and my focus. And any moment my eyes get off Jesus, I'm going to go to an idol. We need Christ. We need Christ now, every second. That's the only way you'll have a defense that's biblical. Let's pray. Father, you are good and kind to us. You have given us the gospel. You have given us your son, the one whom we are responsible for his death. It was us, our sin, that crucified the king. It was our wrath that he took. God, I know that there are probably people in this room that don't know the glory of that gospel, that they've been living in some kind of religion but not enjoying and trusting in the finished work of Christ. Not basking in the glory of Christ daily. God, I beg you, I plead with you, as Psalm 118 say, states, please save. Hosanna, please save. There are people in this place that need to repent of their sin and trust in Christ alone and find their joy and satisfaction in Him alone. God, I beg you, please work in their hearts and show them the glory of your Son. God, I pray for us, the believers out there that have put the gospel to the side began to exalt their own works righteousness, God, I pray that they will turn back to the glory of Christ and find their joy in you. May we rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.